You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 2nd of September for the first listening date of the 9th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. This week I'll be sourcing primarily from the New York Times with some longer, more in-depth articles. Beginning with, Once a force in Harlem, the oldest black church in New York hangs on. This comes from their Streetscapes section. And it was posted on August 18th, written by Mia Jackson. Mother AME Zion Church recently received a $200,000 grant for preservation, but attendance has declined in recent years. In the 227 years since its birth, Mother African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, the oldest black church in New York State, has served as a stop on the Underground Railroad, a haven for black artists and intellectuals during the Harlem Renaissance, and an amphitheater for civil rights activism during the 1950s and 60s. Tucked among a row of tenements on West 137th Street between Malcolm X and Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevards, the imposing yet understated church is on a block unscathed by the insatiable tide of Harlem-hungry real estate developers. The building, designed by one of the first licensed black architects in the nation, George Washington Foster, stands as one of few examples of Gothic revival architecture nestled in the heart of Harlem. But an aging congregation base, deferred maintenance, insufficient funding, and a rapidly gentrifying Harlem threatened to capsize the church in the face of mounting financial distress. Mother Zion lives week to week like the people on the block, said the Reverend Malcolm J. Byrd, the senior pastor of the church. Churches nationwide are experiencing dwindling turnouts at Sunday service. Now that religious institutions regularly compete with brunch reservations, farmers markets, sports games, and sleeping in for the Sunday morning slot. Mother AME Zion, which closed its doors for two years during the pandemic, also lost many of its congregants to COVID-19. Not to mention much of its congregation base, New York's working-class African-American community can no longer afford the neighborhood. The history of Harlem churches is bound up with the history of cities and the changes that happen within the cities, said Professor Wallace Best, who teaches African-American studies and religion at Princeton University and is writing a book on black churches in Harlem. A lot of these churches are emptying out, and that has to do with demographic patterns, he said. The church received landmark status in 1993, and in January, it received a $200,000 grant from the National Trust for Historic Preservation, an infusion of support intended to establish an endowment fund that the church will draw on the interest from 
for routine maintenance and preservation. But the church will be unable to financially sustain itself and uphold its legacy of tending to the spiritual, political, and social needs of its community without a dramatic uptick in its membership and donation flow. On any given Sunday, a few dozen or so churchgoers, primarily a mixture of older congregants and curious tourists, fill the pews. In 1971, about 8,000 paraders marched up 7th Avenue, now known as Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevard, during the sesquicentennial celebration of the church whose conference at the time boasted a citywide membership of 20,000 people, according to the New York Times. The First Sunday After Second Class Treatment the very first Sunday service of the church was held in 1796 in a cabinet-maker's shop in Lower Manhattan on Cross Street, flanked by Orange and Mulberry Streets. A group of former slaves, dissatisfied with their second-class treatment in the predominantly white John Street Methodist Church, left to start Zion Church under the leadership of its first bishop, James Varick. A 19th century historian wrote of John Street Methodist that, quote, the colored members were not permitted to come to the sacrament, communion, until all the white members, even children, had communed. In 1820, the church's members formally, we, pardon me, that's formally voted to withdraw themselves from the white Methodist church denomination to form an entirely separate conference known as African Methodist Episcopal Zion. Numerous leaders of the early 19th century Zion Church were outspoken advocates of the abolitionist movement. Sojourner Truth, a former slave, evangelist, and abolitionist, upon escaping her bondage and reaching New York City in 1829, joined Mother A.M.E. Zion, the AME Zion Church Conference membership boasts a distinguished roster of abolitionist luminaries, including Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, colloquially referred to as the Freedom Church. AME Zion was a sanctuary of liberation during the 19th century, an era of rampant oppression and inequality. The flourishing of Mother AME Zion is intricately tied to black migratory patterns in the city. The 137th Street location is the church's sixth home. After outgrowing its humble beginnings in the cabinet maker's shop, the church constructed its first edifice in 1800 on a 35 by 45 foot plot of land on the corner of Church and Leonard Streets in Lower Manhattan. In 1825, Mother A.M.E. Zion purchased six plots of land near 86th Street to, pardon me, to use as a cemetery in a budding Seneca village, a predominantly black middle-class community established that same year. A.M.E. Zion was one of the first landowners and the first two individuals to buy land in the village were connected to the church, said Meredith B. Lynn, an assistant professor of historical archaeology at Bard College. In 1853, Mother A.M.E. Zion established a satellite church in the village to serve the community's growing black population. In 1857, the community was uprooted and forced to move farther north and west 
under state-authorized eminent domain because of the construction of Central Park. Much of the city's working-class black community migrated to Little Africa, which is present-day Greenwich Village, after the violence of the 1863 draft riots in Lower Manhattan. In the footsteps of its congregation base, the church relocated to its third location in a former Dutch Reformed church on the northeast corner of West 10th and Bleecker Streets in 1864. The construction of Pennsylvania Station in 1910 and the widening of 6th Avenue in 1926, coupled with fierce competition for housing with recently arrived Italian immigrants in Little Africa, forced many of the neighborhood's black families to uproot once again and head farther uptown. Mother A.M.E. Zion moved to the Upper West Side in 1904, then to its fifth home, in a former Episcopal church on West 136th Street in Harlem and to its final location on West 137th Street in 1925. Mother A.M.E. Zion arrived in Harlem when numerous black families were moving from the South to capitalize on the expanding economic and creative prospects in the neighborhood. That period is now known as the Harlem Renaissance. Coupled with increased racial tension and discrimination, the Renaissance engineered, pardon me, engendered a new collective consciousness, sense of unity, and political culture among residents, which was formalized through the black church. The Reverend James W. Brown and his successor, the Reverend Benjamin C. Robeson, established Mother AME Zion as an institution of spiritual worship and political activism. Mr. Robeson, who led the church from 1936 to 1963, preached the doctrine of civil rights activism, which drew notable Harlem residents of the likes of W.E.B. Du Bois and Langston Hughes to Mother A.M.E. Zion. Under the leadership of the Reverend George McMurray, who succeeded Mr. Robeson, the church created numerous programs devoted to economic and social rehabilitation. In the 1970s, the church opened the James L. Varick Community Center and established a community board to operate the center, which provided daycare, mental health care, after-school programs, and education for women experiencing homelessness. In 2015, the board could no longer afford the community center and they sold the building. The church's interior still reflects its illustrious history, in the basement, a small museum houses its rare documents and old photographs. The remains of Mr. Varick rest below the sanctuary. The 1,000-seat sanctuary was constructed like an auditorium, and that's purposeful, said Professor Best. The building was built in recognition that it would have to meet the full needs of the community, he said. I pray for him. But another revolution, pardon me, that's, but another evolution has come, and this time the church won't just move, it will die. Much of the housing units, even the so-called affordable ones that have sprung up in the neighborhood, are financially out of reach for Harlem's working-class residents. Although North, Har pardon me, although North Harlem's overall population climbed by 15% from 2010 to 2020, 
its black population fell by more than 10 percentage points to 56.7%, which is down from 67.2%. If you wake up in the morning and look out your window, you'd think you're living downtown, said Amelia Montgomery, 81, a longtime Harlem resident and member of Mother Amy Zion. She and her late husband, Dabney Montgomery, a Tuskegee airman and civil rights activist, bought a brownstone a few blocks from the church in 1978. She also contributed to the efforts to establish a nearby, the nearby, Dorrance Brooks Square Historic District, a row house rich area between Lenox Avenue and Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevard. Ms. Montgomery, intimately tied to the church since the moment of her birth, after her mother went into labor during a Friday night prayer meeting at Mother A.M.E. Zion, hopes Mr. Bird will be the catalyst the church needs to steer it toward a sustainable future amid a crossroad of tradition and change. I pray for him every day, and whatever I can do to restore the spirit of Mother Zion, I'm doing that, said Ms. Montgomery. Mr. Bird, a licensed AME Zion minister since he was 14, said the congregation's sustenance cannot be solely resting on the pious routine of Sunday worship. He said, Black people need more than a Sunday morning to sustain themselves. The church has to be a multifaceted place for them. Since joining the church in 2019, Mr. Bird has instituted several social programs, including health workshops. He's developing a GED program and is exploring more creative ideas like adding a coffee shop in the church. Mr. Bird has participated in protests against the destruction of the neighborhood's historic properties, arguing that many of Harlem's relics are demolished because they do not have protected status. If you tear down the people's landmarks, if you tear down the people's memorials, there will come a time when there will be generations that will never know how great the people were, said Mr. Bird. Unmarked. Harlem is remarkably unmarked, Professor Best argued. For example, Harlem's Lafayette Theater was, quote, rated by the Landmarks Preservation Commission staff as of outstanding significance, but it was never designated. The former streetscapes colonist Christopher Gray wrote that. Lafayette Theater, a 1,500-seat Renaissance-style theater built in 1912, became the first major theater in New York to desegregate in 1913. A century later, the building was demolished and replaced by an eight-story luxury apartment building called the Lafayette. In recent years, grassroots organizations by pardon me, starting over, in recent years, grassroots organizing by groups like Save Harlem Now, have rallied residents to demand that the Landmark Preservation Commission do more to preserve keepsakes from Harlem's celebrated early 20th century history. Since its founding in 2015, the group has successfully obtained protected status for some Harlem landmarks, including the Harlem branch of the New York Public Library. Nonetheless, some black churches have downsized, viewing selling their brick-and-mortar houses of worship to luxury apartment developers with deep pockets as the only viable path forward. The Victorian Gothic architecture and stained-glass windows that once made up Metropolitan Community United Methodist Church 
which dates back to 1871, was demolished in 2020, despite objections from parishioners and preservationists alike. In 2017, Second Canaan Baptist Church sold its property to Level 1 Holdings to redevelop it into an eight-story condominium with a sanctuary on the lower level. First Ebenezer Baptist Church also sold its building in 2017, creating a new sanctuary on the first floor of the condominium constructed in its place. Churches in Harlem are confronting a changed neighborhood, said Professor Best. To ask what is the future of black churches in Harlem is to ask what is the future of black people in Harlem. End of article. Next article comes from the Style section of the New York Times and was posted on September 1st. Kind of a flip side of the architectural news portion. This one written by Jane Margolis. An architect who forges ahead in her own lane, Elizabeth Graciolo is a black female classical architect and owns her own firm. Thanks to her influence, she may soon have more company. The University of Notre Dame is known for producing top-notch, classically trained young architects, and every year the principles of architecture firms that work in traditional styles make pilgrimages to a spring career fair at the Indiana School to vie for the new talent. When Elizabeth Graciola was a partner at Peter Pinoyer Architects, a New York practice with an historical bent, she often attended the career fair on behalf of the firm. In March, Miss Graciola made the trek again, except this year she was representing pardon me, her own company called Yellow House Architects which was not incidentally the only firm at the event owned by a woman of color, she said. Students lined up to meet her. All the girls came to talk to us, recalled Miss Graciola. In the three years since she started Yellow House, Miss Graciola, who said she is 49, has developed a busy practice devoted to high-end residential design in a style she calls clean classicism which amounts to buildings that take traditional forms but eschew excessive ornamentation and interiors featuring modern and contemporary art and furnishings. Currently, she's renovating a 1934 Georgian Revival house in Palm Beach, Florida, and embarking on the design for a new community with a culinary focus outside Atlanta. Based in Manhattan with a satellite office in Miami, Yellow House has 23 employees, Ms. Graciolo stands out in her field because she's a black woman and also because she embraces a style that in recent years has been sucked into the culture wars with former President Donald J. Trump attempting to mandate traditional forms for federal buildings and now Republicans in Congress taking up the, ca the cause. Pardon me. Of the nearly 122,000 licensed architects working in the United States in 2022, 23% were women, and less than 2% were black, according to the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards. Black women? They make up less than one-half of 1%. She said, I feel lucky. But pluck, not luck, got Ms. Graziola to where she is today. Architecture, you might say, was her salvation. 
Born and raised in Haiti, she enjoyed a comfortable childhood, attending top schools and going on vacations to Europe. She had her own maid, but her world was turned upside down when she was eleven upon learning that the man she knew as her loving father, a jeweler, was actually her stepfather. Her birth father lived in Brooklyn and put the wheels in motion to have his daughter join him. He died unexpectedly before she arrived in 1987 at age 13, unmoored in a strange country with whom she said she... Pardon me. Unmoored in a strange country with whom she said was an unsympathetic stepmother. She vowed to get out of that home as soon as possible. She had always been an outstanding student and hit on the idea of graduating from high school after her junior year and going away to college that much sooner. Miss Graciola said she was excelling in all her classes except English, French being her native tongue, so she threw herself into learning the language of her new land, taking ESL classes at night and enrolling in summer school. She set her sights on the Cooper Union, a pioneering New York University that didn't charge tuition at the time. When she couldn't apply to its engineering school, no one had advised her to take the required SAT, she put in an application to the School of Architecture. She was just 16 when she got in. Once there, she fell in love with the subject. The curriculum was super conceptual, she said. One assignment was to analyze a juicer. But the classes opened their eyes to the built environment. Pardon me, that's opened her eyes to the built environment and the impact that design has on people. When she graduated in 1995, Miss Graciola recalled she was one of only two black students in her class. The college said it did not keep statistics on race back then, so they could not confirm her recollection. Miss Graciola spent the first few years after graduating working what she described as crazy hours for Sikognagni Kala Architect, helping with new houses in the Hamptons and apartment renovations in New York. She then took a job at Mr. Pinoyer's firm, not because of any particular interest in traditional architecture, but because she had heard the staff kept reasonable hours, which would give her time to study for the licensing exam. But she thrived at that firm, soaking up classicism on the job and on the learning trips to Europe it organized for the staff. She rose in the ranks with each new project, an Upper East Side townhouse renovation, an upscale community in China, condo towers in Manhattan. She acquired confidence. After 18 years at the firm, she wanted to start her own. Ms. Graciola called it Yellow House because yellow is her favorite color. She uses it to polish her nails, and she felt it suggested a more collaborative approach than a company bearing the founder's name. Parentheses Learning about Vincent van Gogh's painting, The Yellow House, The Street, and his dream of turning his home into an art colony, sealed that deal. Miss Graciola started her firm with four projects. Currently, she said she's juggling 15 and traveling several times a month to job sites around the country. Practiced in ground-up construction, Miss Graciola has recently become more interested in interior design. She decorated the model apartment of an Art Deco office building in Lower Manhattan that was converted to condo use and took charge of the entire foyer at the spring's Kipps Bay Decorator Show House. 
which was held in a Beaux-Arts mansion in Uptown neighborhood. Her personal residences, likewise, straddled new and old. After a divorce 14 years ago, she moved with her two school-aged children to Battery Park City in Lower Manhattan, where the architecture of her 1980s apartment building is nondescript, but the Hudson River is steps away, and her views of the water make her feel like she's, quote, living on a boat. Her Italianate weekend house, on the other hand, dates to the 1840s and was designed by none other than Andrew Jackson Downing, the influential landscape architect and co-author of books on residential architecture. That house is in the upstate New York town of Hudson, which appealed to her for its architectural diversity and cultural diversity. My children are black, said Miss Graciola, who is a member of the National Organization of Minority Architects, NOMA. I wanted them to feel comfortable. Some minority architects have found the recent efforts to mandate classicism particularly problematic because of the style's association with columned, slave-holding plantations in the antebellum South, and more generally, the idea of white supremacy. It's triggering and traumatic for some people, said Kimberly Dowdle, a black architect who is the director of strategic relationships at the design firm HOK and past president of NOMA and incoming president of the American Institute of Architects. But Ms. Graciola said that as an immigrant, she doesn't have the same associations that an American-born black person might. She said, you encounter racism, but you don't tie it back to that. A trustee of the Nonprofit Institute of Classical Architecture and Art, Ms. Graciola admires classicism for its symmetry, proportion, and deference to human scale. Pinpointing the ideal height for a windowsill, for example. She is inspired by the photographer Pieter Estersson's Greek Revival House in Red Hook, New York, and she cares about preserving historic buildings but she opposes governmental efforts to dictate an architectural style. She added, there are some beautiful modern structures. Her former boss, Mr. Pinoyer, was at the Notre Dame Career Fair this spring and succeeded in nabbing a few graduates. He said, it's a small world, firms that work, that do work like ours. Miss Graciola's fledgling company couldn't compete with more established outfits like his, and she was able to hire only one person, but not surprisingly, given her knack for finding alternative means of getting a job done, she has discovered other ways to recruit and sometimes gives aspiring black architects a leg up. Ms. Graciola, who is a trustee of Cooper Union, makes time to meet with students at her alma mater. She served as a mentor and a role model, particularly for young female architects, said Laura Sparks, the university's president. Ms. Graciola has also forged a connection with Mississippi State University through an initiative of the Design Leadership Network, and she has had black students of its College of Architecture, Art, and Design interning at Yellow House. Cole Arrington who is 20 and a junior in the college and is black, spent three weeks this summer at Ms. Graciela's New York office and said he was glad his first internship was at a firm headed by a minority executive. I hope to follow in her footsteps and one day start my own firm, he said. 
On a recent visit to a project that was wrapping up in a farmhouse-style house from the 1980s in Ulster County, Miss Graciola ticked off items on a punch list. Yellow House not only gave the clients a two-story addition that included a spacious kitchen opening to their lush backyard, but the firm also created a proper entry foyer, redid the roof and heating system, added robust architectural moldings, and reconfigured the upstairs so that every bedroom has its own bath. Yellow House also added an oval window near the bottom of the staircase to the second floor, bringing natural light to the space and providing a peak of pink peonies and the green field beyond. On the site visit, Miss Graciola stood with her back to that window facing the stairs. Do you know what's bugging me? she asked. Her sharp eye noticed that the contractor had installed baseboards that didn't match. The one on the left was higher than the one on the right, leaving the space slightly off kilter. It all goes back to classicism, she said. There needs to be a balance. Next, we have a shorter piece, still reading from the New York Times from their U.S. section. This one's written by Dana Goldstein. It was published August 17th. Little Rock will offer AP African American Studies despite state objections. The latest. The Little Rock School District in Arkansas said on Wednesday that it would continue to offer advanced placement African American Studies over the objections of the administration of Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders, a Republican who has limited instruction on race. The decision comes after the State Department of Education announced on Monday that the course's content might violate a new law banning, quote, indoctrination in schools. What led to the resistance? The decision by the district illustrates some of the widespread discomfort that frontline educators have with a new crop of curriculum laws that seek to tamp down on discussions about racism, gender nonconformity, and sexuality. In Arkansas, a new law aims to ban, quote, teaching that would indoctrinate students with ideologies, such as critical race theory. The same legislation weakened teachers' tenure protections, which has raised the stakes in the confrontation with the state over African American studies. The Arkansas Education Department said the AP class might not carry state credit toward high school graduation and that students would not receive state assistance with test fees. But the Little Rock School District said in a statement that it would ensure that students would not be burdened by those fees which are generally $98 per AP exam. Colleges typically require a score of at least 3 out of 5 on those exams to grant credit. Little Rock Central High School, which is offering the class, serves about 2,500 students, half of whom are black. AP African American Studies will allow students to explore the complexities, contributions, and narratives that have shaped the African American experience throughout history including Central High School's integral connection, said the district. Educators offering the class are very scared, said April Reisma, president of the Arkansas Education Association, the teachers' union. They can be let go at any moment for any reason. 
She lauded what she called the bold choice to move forward with the course and said her union would continue to argue to the state that AP African American Studies is a rigorous, fact-based class protected under the law and not an example of ideology or opinion. The State Department of Education said it would take no further action to prevent schools from offering the course, quote, until it's determined whether it violates state law and teaches or trains teachers in CRT and indoctrination. A School District with History In 1957, a group of nine black teenagers, escorted by the U.S. National Guard, integrated Little Rock Central High School as white protesters, spit and jeered. Governor Huckabee Sanders is a graduate of the school and has spoken proudly of its legacy. Ivory Tolson, education director of the NAACP, said he participated in a conference call Wednesday with five members of the Little Rock Nine, who expressed dismay with the state's opposition to AP African American Studies and were planning a joint response. They are living history and have experienced the things that people are trying to whitewash out of the curriculum, said Dr. Tolston, who is also a professor at Howard University. What's next? The AP African American Studies curriculum has not been finalized, and it's unclear whether the course will be offered broadly in the many conservative states that have passed laws restricting how race is taught. The class has drawn debates since it officially rolled out in February. It emerged then that the College Board, the nonprofit that runs the AP program, had revised the course in response to objections from the administration of Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, the Republican presidential candidate who has helped lead the charge to restrict teaching on race, gender, and sexuality. After an outcry from scholars of black studies who saw the changes as censoring their discipline, the College Board said the course would undergo another round of revisions before a final version would be released publicly later this year. According to the College Board, 700 schools will pilot the class this academic year, and 200 colleges have agreed to accept credit for the course. I don't recall crediting the author. Perhaps I did, but that was written by Dana Goldstein. Still reading from the New York Times, this also from September 1st, What to Watch, for listeners who may have access to Hulu. And this was written by Christopher Kuo. A new Hulu series celebrates the many faces of black success. A hybrid of talk show and dinner party, the Conversations Project, pairs gourmet meals with provocative questions about being black in America. Seat eight highly successful black people around a dinner table and prompt them to discuss reparations and hairstyles and Kanye West over crayfish bisque and roast duck. That's the premise for a new television show produced by ESPN's black-focused media platform, Andscape, called The Conversations Project, now streaming on Hulu. A hybrid of talk show and dinner party, the unscripted series explores the pride and peril of being black in America. Taking a cue from the early 20th century salons of the Harlem Renaissance, where black luminaries would gather to exchange ideas, 
The show's six episodes bring together noteworthy black figures, actors, comedians, professors, business owners, and astronauts, for a dinner hosted by Andscape's veteran NBA writer Mark Spears, the journalist Elaine Welteworth, and the chef David Lawrence. Each of the meal's three courses prepared by Lawrence and a team of chefs corresponds with a new question for the guests. Are black people in America inherently more spiritual than other racial or ethnic groups? What does it mean to be authentic in a world that so often requires code switching? What's the difference between having influence and being a leader? For the show's hosts and guests, the Conversations Project is about more than discussing pressing topics. It's also about transforming how black people are portrayed on screen. A celebration of black success and a window into how many different forms that success can take. You see lots of white people that have had success on television, said Spears. Thousands and thousands and thousands of white people who have had success. It's time for people to see black people that have had success and talk about it. Andrea Lewis, a Canadian actress and singer featured on the series, says she hopes it will open up the conversation that blackness is not a monolith. It has many faces, said Lewis, who's widely known for her role on the show Degrassi, The Next Generation. It has many stories to be told, and that's all any person of color wants to see. They want to see their experience shown, and that our experience is not just tiny, it's not just something that can be put in a box. The Conversations Project, as it was originally conceived, looked very different from its current iteration. It was supposed to be about bringing athletes of color to black-owned wineries, an idea that blossomed out of the friendship between Lawrence and Spears. For years, Spears had frequented 1300 on Fillmore, one of Lawrence's restaurants in San Francisco, and the two had bonded over their love of wine and their loyalty to rival soccer teams. Lawrence loves Chelsea. Spears is an Arsenal fan. One day in 2021, while sipping on wine and watching soccer at Lawrence's house, Spears realized that there weren't many online resources to find black-owned wines. When Spears heard that Anscape was in the market for a new show, he and Lawrence decided to produce a pilot episode in which they took Terrence Mann, a basketball player for the Los Angeles Clippers, to a winery at St. Helena, California. The host interviewed Mann about his career, cooked a meal for him, and talked during dinner with the Clippers assistant coach Brian Shaw, his wife Nikki Shaw, a professional chef, the comedian W. Camus Bell, and the winemaker Brene Royale. It might be royal. I don't know. Hulu and Anscape loved the dinner party segment and cut the rest. The concept became Lawrence cooking the meals while Spears and Welteroth, who was added as a co-host, helped guide the conversations. A cocktail hour segment before the meal would allow the host to introduce the guests to black-owned wines, preserving a piece of the original idea. Filming began this past February in Long Island City, Queens. It was just a wide-ranging discussion, said Spears. We had scripted topics, but we didn't have scripted answers or a scripted discussion. Though most of the episodes show the guests nodding in agreement, 
The show is most entertaining when the conversation grows divisive, even heated, as it did in the sixth episode during a discussion of the impact of social media. It sometimes feels like we are the enemy of y'all, Brett Gray, a 27-year-old actor and TikTok influencer, says to the older members of the group. These discussions are less about raising awareness about certain topics and more about modeling a way of talking and disagreeing with each other, said Raina Kelly, the editor-in-chief of Anscape and the show's executive producer. At its most important, it's basically an example nowadays of how to have a civil conversation, said Kelly. But the show has far more camaraderie than conflict, more levity than ill will. It is, at its core, a depiction of a group of black people sharing two of life's greatest pleasures, delicious food and stimulating conversation. Even if you're in the sticks of West Virginia and there's no black people there, said Spears, you can watch this show and say, oh, okay, that's what it's like to go to dinner with some black folks. Next, we have another article following up on news from that Alabama Riverfront brawl in August. This one was posted on August 28th, written by Frank Rojas and still for the New York Times. Place to sit or symbol of resistance? the evolution of the folding chair. It figured prominently in viral footage of a brawl where it was a, used as a blunt instrument. So why is the hum, humble, pardon me, why is the humble folding chair now turning up on t-shirts, earrings, and at least one tattoo? Within hours of a fight breaking out on an Alabama riverfront this month, Images and video clips from the brawl began to ricochet online. Then came the memes. After that, it wasn't long until the merchandise started to appear. On August 5th, a group of white boaters attacked Damien Pickett, a black riverboat captain, after he instructed them to dock their pontoon elsewhere as the space was reserved for a larger vessel. A group of mostly black bystanders rushed to his defense. In the aftermath of the brawl, a white folding chair, an unlikely weapon that one man was seen wielding over his head during the encounter, has emerged as a joking but not really symbol of resistance against perceived racial aggression. On TikTok, hashtag boat fight and hashtag Montgomery brawl videos have racked up tens of millions of views. Listings have flourished by the dozens on retailers like Redbubble, Etsy, and eBay, Earrings, necklaces, mugs, t-shirts, and window decals have all been fashioned in the image of the folding chair in recent weeks. By August 10th, four people wanted in connection with the brawl had turned themselves into the Montgomery Police Department. Reggie Ray, the man accused of using the chair in the altercation, has also been charged with disorderly conduct. Since then, there's been a growing market for all things folding chairs, at least two online auctions advertising what was allegedly the white chair actually used in the brawl, one of which was listed for $35,000, abruptly ended because there was an error in the listing, end quotes, according to eBay. For Tamika Hicks of Lewisburg, North Carolina, however, the chair represented much more than a cash grab, Miss Hicks, 38, a full-time healthcare worker who runs an Etsy handicraft shop on the side, 
said that she had fallen into this unusual cottage industry by accident, having originally made a pair of folding chair earrings for a friend after seeing the brawl online. After a robust response to her Facebook post showing off the earrings, she saw an opportunity to generate more income. She said she had received close to 1,000 orders this month. People just don't understand the power of social media, Miss Hicks said. Something that went viral has brought in other forms of income for me as a single mom. I'm also able to be part of this conversation and to continue it. Jasmine Green, a visual artist in Pittsburgh, moved quickly to capitalize on the moment. On her website, she is selling chair earrings of her own design that have the words, Try Me, carved into the center of the seat. She said she planned to send some of the profits after expenses to a fund set up for those who came to Mr. Pickett's defense, including Mr. Ray. Part of the celebration of this chair has been this idea of collective care, said Miss Green, who is also the director of education at the nonprofit One Hood Media Academy, which provides art, education, and social justice programming to communities of color. But I also want to remind people to make sure that we're also following up on those that were involved in the fight if they need resources. Uja Anya, an associate professor in Carnegie Mellon's Department of Modern Languages, was given a pair of Ms. Green's Trimey earrings by her girlfriend and wore them to a Pittsburgh Steelers game where she said they were complimented by strangers. To her, the earrings are more than just a comedic fashion trend. It's empowering and a collective sigh of relief, Professor Anya said. Professor Anya suggested that the humor behind the white folding chair had a potency for one particular audience. Anybody can generally understand a meme or a TikTok, she said, but the imagery of this chair is specific to us and has language very specific to black people and black culture. Kalen Sanders, a bank teller and a musician in Dallas, said he found himself deeply moved by the videos he saw online. The fact that this didn't turn into something where guns came out or anybody actually died or anything, it felt very relieving, Mr. Sanders said in an interview. He added that it was encouraging to watch other black people come to, quote, defend one black man that very much could have been another cause. For me, he said, it represented black unity. Instead of simply showing his support or buying a t-shirt or a cap, he decided to immortalize it on his skin. A new tattoo on his left arm reads, Montgomery, Alabama, along with the date August 5th, 2023. A detailed line drawing of the folding chair is centered in the middle. After a conversation with his fiancée, Camry Moss, the two landed on the idea for the tattoo. Two days after the brawl, he and Ms. Ro that's Ms. Moss, who is a tattoo artist, sat down to commit the day to ink at his mother's house. I don't regret it, and it's not a joke, Mr. Sanders said. I don't think over the years I'll be like, oh, why did I do this? According to Ravi Dar, a behavioral scientist at the Yale School of Management who specializes in consumer behavior and branding, any emotionally charged moment that fuses race and anxiety is bound to cause people to feel connected. Professor Dar said the unique thing here, too, was the location. 
The brawl, which erupted in Montgomery's popular riverfront park, occurred at the same dock where enslaved Africans once arrived by steamboat to be sold in the center of town. Parentheses. Although the fight appeared to break out along racial lines, the Montgomery police have said they do not plan to pursue hate crime charges. Professor added, it signals that not much has changed, but this chair seems to have offered a different perspective. Professor Dark compared the unlikely imagery of the folding chair to other moments in history that can be evoked with a single image or item, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee during the national anthem as a statement on police brutality, for instance, or the red hats of a Trump rally. In its visceral connection to the actual events themselves, the chair also conjures up memories of the umbrellas used by pro-democracy demonstrators in Hong Kong to shield themselves from tear, gra tear gas pardon me, and pepper spray during the movement's 2014 street protests. This white chair is not something that's inherently violent, said Miss Green, the artist, which I think has allowed people to have this feeling of humor around it, but it's this unassuming object that plays such a vital role. And for what's probably the last article for this week, still reading from the New York Times from the dance section, this was posted August 28th. In Chicago, keeping the heritage of black dance moving. An initiative started in 2019 helps to address funding disparities and offers a vision of black dance as a form whose categories refuse to be static. This is written by Emma R. Cohen. On a warm July afternoon, Princess Mahoon, the director of the Chicago Black Dance Legacy Project, was sitting in a bustling cafe on the outskirts of the University of Chicago's campus in Hyde Park, wearing a purple and orange dress that billowed around her arms. She gestured out of the window to show me where she went to high school, Kenwood Ac Academy, pardon me, Kenwood Academy, not quite visible from where we sat, but less than two miles away. I was a theater baby, she said, describing the Chicago arts world in which she grew up, her parents met in an African dance class, and her father was a drummer for local dance companies. I have memories of sitting in the theater during tech rehearsals, she continued. We could not eat candy. In the black arts movement, there was no junk food. So we had cherry vitamin C. That was my candy. Recounting her early life, Mahoon, 47, moved through a who's who of Chicago's rich black dance scene. A neighbor taught Catherine Dunham technique, maintaining the legacy of one of the city's brightest early 20th century dance stars. Mahoon trained in African dance with Muntu Dance Theater and learned techniques of the African-American diaspora with Najwa Dance Corps, both near where she grew up on the South Side. And on trips home from college, she would take classes with Homer Bryant, who has worked since 1990 to make ballet training accessible to all students at his studio in the South Loop. Several of these companies are now being bought to get, pardon me, that's brought together by the Chicago Black Dance Legacy Project, an initiative that strives to help sustain black dance makers in the city and offer lasting acknowledgement for their contributions. Mahoon said, the idea was to give all these companies their flowers while they were still here. The companies involved in the project, 
established in 2019 by the Joyce Foundation and the Logan Center for the Arts at the University of Chicago, have all persevered in the face of significant disparities in funding. The 2019 report showed that organizations like the Joffrey Ballet and the Hubbard Street Dance Chicago in predominantly white sections of the city have been the major recipients of grant dollars, even as more than 30% of dancers and choreographies in Chicago identify as black. And while many black dance makers, Mahoon included, experience the scene as a vibrant network of beloved characters, it is easy for companies to retreat into a sense of competitiveness because of the scarcity of financial support. We are such a siloed city, Nicole Clark Springer, with Deeply Rooted Dance Theater, said during an interview. We're each in our little parts of Chicago trying to get funded and all have our heads down. We know each other and we love each other and we share dancers, but there was never an intentional moment when we came up for air. The Chicago Black Dance Legacy Project wants to change that by working to address both the lack of funding and the attendant fragmentation. Bringing together well-established and newer companies alike, it offers money, assistance with archiving projects, and organizational support. That support takes the form of improvement plans that are developed for each company, including guidance on board governance, marketing strategies, and executive coaching. Participating companies also gather regularly for peer-led knowledge sharing, and they collaborate at least twice a year on group performances. The current cohort of 10 companies brought together at the beginning of 2023 will share the stage on September 7th at Ravinia, the outdoor pavilion in Highland Park. Brill Barrett, the founder and director of Mad Rhythms, M-A-D-D, a tap company that joined the project this year, Grew up dancing at community centers on the city's west side, but as he became more focused on tap, he began to travel across the city for classes, eventually performing around the country, founding Mad Rhythms in 2001. And was an opportunity to return to the city and to share the expansive potential of tap with young dancers in his hometown. He said, tap dance opened up the world to me, and I wanted to use it to try to open up the world to my community. While Barrett found warm support for his company in some quarters, he also felt sidelined by the broader dance community. He said, I've always had to fight. My identity as a black man in America has never been separated from my identity as a tap dancer, fighting to be recognized by the dance world. Mad Rhythms is now in its 22nd year, but even companies much older than Barrett's have found the Legacy Project to be a valuable partner for ensuring the endurance of their companies and history. My mission is a 200-year mission, said Joel Hall, a pioneering dance maker who founded Joel Hall Dancers and Center in 1974. A concern for longevity has motivated Barrett to create more sustainable structures for his company's operations, but it has also spurred him to tend to the group's archives. When he heard that the Legacy Project was partnering with the Newberry Library, he jumped at the opportunity to store materials at the research institution. He recalled thinking, this is dope. This gives people access to this history that we've built. Barrett loaded up his car with large plastic bins full of papers and ephemera to bring to the library. 
Now in the Newberry stacks alongside rich black and white photos of Muntu performances and glamorous headshots of Catherine Dunham, you can find beaming images of a young Barrett and custom sneakers with carefully affixed Capizio tap soles. We're dance historians, said Sheila Walker Wilkins of her work at Najwa, though the same could be said of many of the companies in the Legacy Project. She went on, we are preserving dance styles that reflect our heritage and traditions. But to add to that, she continued, our traditions are ongoing as a group of people. By gathering together such a wide range of companies, practitioners of different techniques at various stages in their careers, the Legacy Project offers a vision of black dance as a category whose boundaries refuse to remain static. It's a revolving circle, said Jamal Oliver, co-founder of Era Footwork Crew. He said each company has its own store of knowledge to offer the group. He said, we need the OGs and the OGs need us, and we need the youth that's younger than us to make it all work. We have all the advantages, pardon me, we all have advantages that we can give to one another. That's how you stay ahead of the game. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible in part by the generous donations from the Joslin Charitable Trust. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.